Let us pray. God, as we seek to follow your star, we ask that you would break through to us, that we would open our eyes, that we might see what you have in store for us, just as you did for Isaiah and Paul and for the wise ones from the East. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy holy sight. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, today is the 11th day of Christmas, and tomorrow is what is known in the liturgical calendar as the Feast of the Epiphany. And in the Western Christian Church, this holy day, tomorrow, commemorates the arrival of the Magi, the wise ones from the East, bearing their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or God, frankincense, and mirth. For the past six years that I've been with you on this date, we've heard that familiar story from Matthew, and we've also read it on Christmas Eve. I'm grateful today that Kate Baker Carr, one of our ordained members, offered to preach, and I said, I'd be happy to do a dialogue sermon with you. And so we've been discussing this past week not only what the Gospel of Matthew means to us, but also these other passages we heard from Isaiah, the Psalms, and the letter to the Ephesians. Epiphany is about new light breaking through, new ideas, new ways of being. Now, you may not have caught it, but we sang a little bit, we spoke a little bit of Isaiah and the Psalms and our call to worship and our opening hymn. I'll say a bit about that in a minute. The texts that we chose today were chosen centuries ago to help us think about what epiphany means to us. So the first question we'd like to entertain is, What is an epiphany? Some of you know this, but it comes from the Greek, meaning to reveal, to pull back, for a vision from above. It means to me pulling back the existential curtain on something we need to see, something that God needs for us to see. As the word epiphany means to reveal, we must ask ourselves what or in this case, who is being revealed? And the answer is magnificent. God, who dwells among us in human form, or as the church says, God incarnate, God in flesh and bones, God embodied in Jesus the Christ is the revelation. Epiphany is a revelation of divine love, heralded and recognized by all creation. Western and Eastern churches mark the Feast of Epiphany differently. In the West, the celebration focuses on the Magi, who followed a bright and lofty star to a child. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, the celebration focuses on the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, a text we'll hear more about next week from our seminarian jazz. In this text, the heavens open, a dove appears, and a voice proclaims, This is my beloved child. Whether East or West, Heaven and earth proclaim the incarnate Jesus to be the Lord's Christ, 
to be a divine revelation of great love. Epiphany is more than a day. It is the season that carries us to Ash Wednesday, to Lent. It is a season that invites us to recognize in the stories of sacred text and the holy texts of our own lives what God is revealing to us. Will we be like the Magi who follow a star, recognize the revelation, worship the child, and head home by another way? Or will we simply pass by the Christ child? Or worse, betray him to the likes of evil King Herod? Will we walk along the Jordan of our lives and fail to hear the dove who proclaims, this is my child? God's revelations happen all the time. What is stunning in the text we hear today is that individuals recognized and received the epiphanies. Their hearts were open to the revelations, and as a result, everything changes, for nothing can stay the same once we experience the revelation of God's love and of justice. Now, in our call to worship in our opening hymn, we recounted aloud the words of Isaiah and the psalmist and how they envisioned this light of epiphany. The prophet Isaiah was writing to people in exile, much like the 71 million asylum seekers in our world today. And he was announcing a glorious new day of hope. We echoed his words when we sang in our opening hymn, Arise, your light has come, fling wide the prison door, proclaim the captive's liberty, good tidings for the poor. And just like the hopes and the resolutions that you and I project into our secular new year of 2020, Isaiah imagined a new day, a new light, a new start. The psalmist, who we also read in our call to worship, imagines a new kind of king, a new kind of leader, one who will favor the poor and needy, who will begin an era of redistributing justice. One line from the psalm that we inadvertently left out was this, the king will defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. Which causes us to ask, how well are our leaders doing in defending the poor, the needy, crushing the oppressor? What kind of kings are you and I following? The text of Ephesians offers a tiny reminder, but a slender, but a slender glimpse into the divine revelation the Apostle Paul received. The dramatic, blinding light fall from his horse rode to Damascus where God yelled, Stop persecuting my son. In Ephesians is reduced simply to this. You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's it. And yet, of course, it's not it. Because for Paul and for us, what matters most is what he did in light of the revelation from God, in light of the epiphany 
that Jesus was and is the Son of God, come for the Gentiles as well. And so Paul, who once persecuted Christians with great cruelty, ceased to do so. He became a disciple who welcomed Gentiles into the way of Jesus Christ. He was persecuted and imprisoned for his witness, yet he pressed on. His visits and letters profoundly influenced the Christian communities, the early Christian communities, and continue across centuries and continents to influence us. Like many of you, I hold the promise of much, but not all, of his writings dear. I love, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and work for God's good pleasure. For this reminds me that in the midst of difficulties, difficulties that may give rise to uncertainty, frustration, even fear and trembling, God is with me and God is at work in me. So too, I hold fast to Paul's conviction that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. How fitting that we often hear this promise, this good news, as part of the assurance of pardon each Sunday. Finally, the closing words from the great hymn of love speak themselves of revelation. Now we understand partially, and one day all will be revealed. Yet even now, we are fully known, fully revealed to God who loves us. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have already been understood. So faith, hope, Love abide, but the greatest of these is love. In the midst of our dimly lit understanding, love sustains. Imagine how diminished our liturgy, our scripture, and our theology would be had Paul rejected the revelation of divine love and the responsibility it placed upon him. So Isaiah, the Psalms, Paul, and we also hear from the Gospel of Matthew about the Magi themselves. And what continues to capture my imagination is that they were willing to take great risks in order to go searching for the truth in what was a monumental event. They were willing to recognize who the baby Jesus was and refuse to conspire with evil and then go home by a different way. So Kate and I discussed these passages, and we also discussed some of our own favorite epiphanies, some from elsewhere in Scripture, 
from stories beyond the Bible and from our own lives. And I know, Kate, you have one about Anna that you'd like to share with us. If I could, I would love to share a pot of tea with the prophet Anna. Anna is mentioned only in the Gospel of Luke, which dedicates but three tantalizing verses to her extraordinary life. We know only this. She had a lineage. She was the daughter of Penuel from the tribe of Asher. She was married for seven years and then became widowed, presumably childless. As a widow, she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And when she was 84 years old, Anna encountered Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus when they came to the temple for the rite and ritual of purification, a rite required of every woman 40 days after the birth of a child. And the Gospel of Luke says that at that very moment, the moment Anna saw Jesus, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking to the redemption of Jerusalem. She gave thanks, and she spoke. I want to ask her what was so special about Jesus. In her countless years of keeping watch in the temple, she had seen thousands upon thousands of 40-day-old infants. How? In an instant, did she recognize and receive the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah? Had life in the temple, had fasting and prayer prepared her heart to recognize the Christ child? And what was it like to be the first person to speak of, to preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ in the temple, in a deeply religious setting. Did people believe her, or did they dismiss her words as but an idle tale, or did they judge her to be the ramblings of an old woman? Did she get lonely? All those things I want to ask the prophet Anna. Kent, I know for you there are epiphanies as well. So I had an epiphany experience actually revisiting passages of Scripture that troubled me. In my graduate school years, an important spiritual and vocational mentor used to preach to his listeners, do not be afraid to give up a familiar truth for a deeper one. This has become an epiphany maxim for me. Do not be afraid to give up a familiar truth for a deeper one. A centerpiece of the way I approach my spiritual and theological growth for myself and for others And I realized I'd applied it earlier in my life. I had grown up being told that homosexuality was wrong, a sin, an abomination against God. And the devout and faithful people who raised me had lots of reasons to believe this. There were scriptures of passage, uh, scriptural passages, just about six, that confirmed this prejudice. And there was plenty of prejudice in the broader secular culture around us to support homophobia. 
And here I was, a child who had been loved and shaped into spiritual being by my family, much in the way that we committed ourselves this morning to loving and shaping the faith of James. And it's something we do for the rest of our children and youth in this holy, beloved community. And as I often repeat, being taught and actually believing firmly in my bones that I was a beloved child of God and no one could take that away from me was a cornerstone of my self-esteem. But this belief was shaken when at age 15 it became very clear to me that I was attracted to boys and not girls. Through no will of my own, based on forces beyond my control, lots of people had figured this out before me, like the grade school kids who called me faggot on the playground. But at age 15, my hormones, my growing mind and body all conspired to show me that this deep-seated wiring was unavoidably true. Why would God give me a desire that was an abomination? Why would God give me something that seemed to go against all that I had been taught about faith and sexuality? But I kept talking to God. I kept going to church. I kept soaking up the love around me. I kept praying it away, but it didn't work. I got depressed, even suicidal. But fortunately, I had some good lights along the way. Friends, loved ones, things I read. And in my own moral compass was this deep spiritual lodestar that I was a beloved child of God. I knew that the broader culture around me was changing in its attitudes about being gay. And eventually I had to see if God existed in less parochial places than my hometown and my home church. So not surprisingly, it was at the university where the world was opening up to me in truly life-giving and diversified ways that I had an epiphany. I threw myself into a paper on the Christian ethics of being gay, exploring in academic ways this very personal question. I looked closely at the six prohibitive passages of Scripture, and I discovered layers of history and culture and literature that were the context in the Bible that, frankly, had not been revealed to me before. I learned that the holiness and Levitical codes prohibited men from having sex with men, but mentioned nothing about women, and had lots of prohibitions and admonitions that modern-day Christians have long given up on, like not eating pork or shellfish, not sleeping with a menstruating woman, not wearing clothing of two different fibers. I learned that the archetypal story of Sodom, from which we get the weird word sodomy and subsequent laws against it, actually had more to do with God's wrath about inhospitality and rape than about homosexuality. I learned that Paul, in trying to teach a new Christian way of being to people living in the pagan Roman world, most specifically didn't want Christian men fooling around with male prostitutes. I also learned that Jesus never spoke about this subject. I learned that historically, Christians have selectively used passages from Scripture and narrow or misguided interpretations to confirm our own prejudices about women Gays, slaves, Jews, other non-Christians, and minorities. And I relearned from the Gospels that the guiding light, what Jesus talks a lot about, the North Star for guiding our souls through this sea of life, is a big kind of divine love. How much we love God and the things God loves, how much we love our neighbors, and in that, how much we love ourselves. And these were deeper truths, overcoming more familiar ones. For me, the light began to shine in the darkness. And Jesus Christ was holding that light for me.
As I said to Kent yesterday, that was going to be hard to follow. (laughs) And it is. Thank you. As some of you know, I grew up in an interfaith family. My mother, father, and stepmother were Protestant Christians, and my stepfather was Jewish. Together, we observed and celebrated a lot of holidays. My faith as a follower of Christ is deeper and richer for my experience of Judaism. For many years, in my late 20s and 30s and 40s, I often celebrated Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Passover, which recounts the exodus of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt through the Red Sea to freedom with Helen Dunn and her family. Helen was a Holocaust survivor. Her uncle Otto got her out of Europe, just at the out of Europe and to America at the last possible moment. In 1939, she arrived in New York at the age of 10, speaking no English. She was reunited with her father, whom she had not seen in eight years. At 22, she graduated from Radcliffe and later received a master's in English literature and then a master's in education, both from Harvard, which she insisted on calling Radcliffe. Before I called Helen Helen, I called her Mrs. Dunn. She was quite simply the best English teacher, the best teacher I ever had. Uncle Otto and Aunt Berta did not escape, but miraculously, They survived multiple concentration camps. Otto only survived because an American soldier recognized some sign of life in him and pulled him off the dead body pile. Think of that revelation. Each year at Passover, Helen drew upon the words from the diary kept by Anne Frank when she, together with six others, were hiding from the Nazis in the secret annex in Amsterdam. Though Helen, Otto, and Berta are no longer alive, I can still close my eyes, see Helen seated between them, surrounded by her children and grandchildren that Hitler sought to deny at the celebration of Passover. And I can hear her recite selections from Anne Frank's diary, including what I suspect are the most well-known words. In spite of everything, I still believe that people are good at heart. In the midst of cold, hunger, constant terror, in the midst of Nazi occupation and threat, and the threat of deportation, a fate that did in fact come to pass. Anne Frank still believed that people were good at heart. 
And so it won't surprise you that about every three years, I reread the diary of Anne Frank. And each reading reveals something, an insight, a revelation, an epiphany I had glossed over before. I first read the book in the sixth grade. And not surprisingly, I completely missed that Anne Frank developed a crush on Peter, a slightly older boy, also in hiding. Much later, I picked up on that. About five years ago, Anne Frank's entry from March 8, 1942, exploded before me in a completely new way. This is what she wrote. And in the evening, when I lie in bed and end my prayers with the words, I thank you, God, for all that is good and dear and beautiful. I am filled with joy. Then I think of the good of going into hiding, of my health, and with my whole being of the dearness of Peter, of that which is still embryonic and impressionable and which we neither of us dare to name or touch, of that which will come sometime, love, the future, happiness, and of the beauty which exists in the world, the world, nature, beauty, and all that is exquisite and fine. Think of it. After she concluded her prayers, most likely the recitation of the Shema Yisrael, the prayer that is central to both morning and evening prayer in the Jewish community, Anne Frank added, I thank you, God, for all that is good and dear and beautiful. The world was burning around her, and she kept the faith added to it, and found joy. Almost 80 years later, Anne Frank's words and witness, her love that could not be extinguished, continue to inform my faith. I begin my days in prayer, and I start now by lighting three candles. I strike a match and say, for all that is good and dear and beautiful. And then I move to the fourth candle and say, and holy in thy sight. And so I begin my mornings amidst a cloud of witnesses. There's another story which I'm going to save for another time, but the lesson from it was this, that before an epiphany, there is usually a time of struggle time of trying to figure things out, a time when it feels extra dark. And it is when that light sparks and when we're open to it that we often come to a new plane, a new plateau of competency, of understanding, of clarity. And so we want to turn this over to all of us about how as we enter this season of epiphany, we may think and look for God's light in the world. In this secular season of New Year's resolutions and personal resolve, Kent and I invite you to leave your resolutions, noble as they may be, at the church door. 
or you may want to bring them into the sanctuary and ask for God's blessing and guidance. In this sacred space, we invite you to enter the epiphany season of Revelation. We invite you to contemplate how you might prepare your heart to recognize and receive a revelation of divine love, that you might be awake to the new lights that God wants to break forth in your lives. How might you prepare your heart, perhaps like Anna, with prayer and fasting? Or perhaps by being willing to give up a familiar truth for a deeper one, always remembering that you're a beloved child of God and no one can take that away from you. Perhaps by incorporating the prayer of one you admire into your own life of prayer. Or perhaps by recognizing that when you're floundering and struggling and feeling lost, you may be on the verge of breaking through to a new truth in a new way. In the midst of it all, hold fast. Remember the promise of the prophet Habakkuk, for still the vision, the revelation, awaits its time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And perhaps all of us, like the wise ones, may see the light may see something wonderful and learn to go home by another way. Amen. Amen.